You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we're definitely talking about a topic that's quite regularly in the news nowadays, and that's going to be the topic of homosexuality. Now, if you're out there in public and you're talking with people, you often hear something like, well, we should be understanding and sympathetic to these people. They, they can't help it. They were born this way, after all. Well, were they? That's the question we're going to be looking at today. And to do that, I brought on the author of Born This Way, Homosexuality, Science, and the Scriptures. His name is J. Allen Branch. Allen Branch got his BBA at Kennesaw State College in 1991, which is right here in Georgia, not too far from me. I've gone to speak for Horatio Christie a few times. He went on to get a Master of Divinity from, South, from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in December of 1993. He went on to get a PhD from there in 2000 in theology with a focus on ethics. As of now, he is a professor of Christian ethics at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Branch, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, Nick, thank you. I look forward to chatting about some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Now, if my audience doesn't, know who you are. Tell us a bit about you know, how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, I was born and raised in a town called Dallas, Georgia, which was very, very rural, and it's been swallowed up by Atlanta now, and uh, was called to preach when I was 20 years old, and uh, wound up teaching here at Midwestern Seminary in 2001. I've been here for 16 years. have a great, great interest in Christian ethics. It's a great joy to teach future pastors and ministers about uh, the issue of Christian ethics, and of course, one of the the dominant issues in our cultures, if not the de- dominant issue, regards uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, these issues. So just as part of trying to help my students grasp the, uh, the arguments that are out there about homosexuality being a trait like hair, skin, or eye color, that's mm-hmm. how I wound up in the research. Mm-hmm. Now, some of my apologist friends, I mean, I'm sure they're supportive work in such space, that they were coming. Kind of like, is this really something we need to be asking about? I mean, even if homosexuals were born that way, that doesn't make it right still. I mean, we can still have other arguments, but I mean, do you hear that objection? If so, what do you think about it? Yes, I've heard that objection from time to time, and I think I understand what Christians are saying. Basically, when people make the argument, well, it doesn't matter if people are born that way or not, it's still sin. Essentially, what they're saying is something along these lines, that the fall and all its terrible effects, it's entirely possible that someone could be born with a predisposition to any number of nasty behaviors. 
But that doesn't mean any of those behaviors are acceptable or morally should they receive moral approval. So it doesn't really matter if they they are. Mm-hmm. And I suppose if someone ever proved that that homosexuality is a trait like hair or skin color, which I don't think is going to happen, but if, hypothetically if someone did, then that's certainly the right Christian answer. Uh, the fall has affected everything, including our our genetics and human behavior at, at all the different levels. But really the the data is being used in many different circumstances, many different disciplines of academics, everything from medicine to uh, education, psychology, psychiatry, even areas such as as precise and specific as endocrinology or or even uh, people dealing with disorders of sexual development. So the data is used in many different areas. So I think it it behooves us to do the best we can to look at the data and see if the claims being made based on the data can be substantiated. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the wise and prudent things for an involved Christian to do when someone makes an argument is to read the primary source materials, compare them to other data and find out if there's any substance to the claims. So I think it's a prudent thing for us to do. Mm. You know, we could even say perhaps that, you know, it could be that hypothetically, even if homosexuality is somehow genetic, which like you, I can't doubt, we've still got a good argument and such, but it doesn't mean this isn't a battle that we should be, we shouldn't be, be fine because, you know, this is just one more false argument that we can knock out then. Well, right. So we want, to, we want to be people of truth, and so Christians want to know what the truth is. And what we're trying to do with the massive amount of research that's been done on, done on homosexuality in the last 40 to 50 years is find out what the data is saying. Some of the, some of the studies are more robust and more, more, uh, more, well, uh, more well constructed than other studies. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first tasks is to discern which studies make more substantive claims as opposed to which studies are really spurious so that's one of the challenges. And then once you identify the studies which seem to be more sensitive, which the they were structured in such a way that that they meet the standards of scientific research, which are quite helpful, actually, then what we want to do is say, okay, well, what are they claiming? What is the truth? And then we evaluate those what science is finding by our theological grid, which for me comes first, my Judeo-Christian worldview. And we try to find out how these things fit in. So really the bigger question is not just about homosexuality. Homosexuality is a subset of a bigger issue in our culture, and that is, what do we say about human behavior? Why do, why do humans act the way they act? Why do humans do the things they do? Mm-hmm. So this, at a philosophical level, this in, interacts with all sorts of issues regarding epistemology. How do we come to know something? So how does someone know that they have same-sex attraction? How does someone know that they have a... a an identity of transgender or something like that. So there's all these really big questions out there. And these, I think if someone looks at the studies on homosexuality and the claims being made, they're going to have a big a grasp on the bigger arguments about human behavior. Now, we as Christians are going to acknowledge that human, human behavior is infinitely complex. And there are tons of things that influence the, the reason why we as humans do what we do. Some of those influences are, in fact, biological. We as Christians are not Gnostics. The Gnostics thought the body was a bad thing and you had a good soul trapped in a bad body. Well, no, we don't believe that, but we do believe the body has been affected by the fall. Mm-hmm. 
And so, so it shouldn't surprise us that uh, the soul is affected by the body. I mean, if you get a cold or the flu, you don't necessarily feel like going out and witnessing and preaching Jesus to people. I mean, no. you feel bad, right? Yeah. So what happens in the body affects us spiritually and emotionally. So really, all these issues are, are quite complex. So we as Christians don't deny that there's biological and genetic component to human behavior. But the real issue is, are we biological genetic automatons? And I say no. There's a component of humans that goes far beyond our DNA. You have a soul. And I realize secular people scoff at this and call it the ghost in the machine and those sort of things. But it's still true mm-hmm. that, that you have a soul. And so we are we are born volitional agents. And the degree, even regardless of what struggles someone may have, someone may have, um, for example, a, a very, very frustrating disease like Tourette's a syndrome, which can just be maddening for folks. And our heart goes out to them. We want to have sympathy. But even someone with Tourette's syndrome who is thinking right would tell you, yes, I struggle with my Tourette's and it causes me real issues. But I also understand I'm still morally accountable for the things I do in my life, even though I have Tourette's. It doesn't give me a free pass to treat people in any manner which I choose to. What it does mean is I should let folks know I'm fighting Tourette's. Hey, can you give me a break? (laughs) Sometimes I might say some things that I don't quite mean in my heart and I'm asking you to show me some grace, but it doesn't give them an excuse. So I think the whole bigger issue is human behavior. And uh, we as Christians are going to insist we're not biological automatons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I really like what you said about Tourette's and such. As we were talking in show prep, for instance, I told you about how my wife and I both have Asperger's. Yes. And something that I've told her about us, about being so different, such as I've said. Now, Asperger's is an explanation for our behavior. It is not a justification for our behavior. Yeah, Nick, that's a good statement. Whenever someone's dealing with any sort of issue, I was an Army chaplain, and a lot of soldiers, when they're they're dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, I mean, it's very disorienting to see the human body dismembered in combat. And a a friend that you you like very much is is suddenly gone. And it, it really, really, really can throw someone for a loop, even guys who are really, really tough and can do things that the rest of us just stand in, of which we stand in awe. But that doesn't excuse my soldiers when they get back from cutting someone off in traffic and snatching them out of a car and beating them up. So, well, I've got PTSD. It's okay if I do that. Well, no, it's not okay if you do that. What it does mean is if you're struggling and fighting with PTSD, then it calls that person to be more self-aware of how they're treating other people. And um, we're still morally accountable. We're still volitional moral agents, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in life. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my wife actually has some PTSD as well, so I definitely can understand what you're saying there. Yeah, it's a real frustrating thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it can be maddening if someone's never been through PTSD it's hard to put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. So when I when I think about all these different issues, homosexuality is another form of human behavior. And so if if someone's never struggled with same-sex attraction or some sort of gender dysphoria, it can be easy to write that person off. Well, that's not what we as Christians do. What we want to try to do is show empathy and sympathy and say, okay, well, look, I, I, I've never been where you're at, but I want to try to understand the the struggle you're having. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to give you a 
give you a pass on any number of sexual behaviors which are outside of Christian principles. Instead, mm-hmm. I think real joy and real peace is found in regardless of your struggles, finding a way to live within God's parameters that honors God, brings glory to him, is consistent with Scripture, regardless of how I subjectively feel. Because in the long run, in, in the short term, it's going to be frustrating because the world just says, well, that's nuts. Why do you want to follow Christian ethics? Just give in to your desires. That's the real you. Yeah. Do what you want. But by faith, you have to believe that what God is saying is true, and you're going to move forward based on that assumption that God's telling me the truth regardless of how I subjectively feel, and he's telling me this for my good. Therefore, even though I have a desire to engage in sexual immorality that is homosexual in nature, I'm not going to do that because I believe God's telling me the truth, and um, and that can be real maddening. So we as Christians want to try to to show sympathy and mercy and walk beside people as they're going through these things without, uh, to just use the slang term, we don't want to throw them under the bus and so we right. forget about them. Let's uh, write them off. Yeah. And uh, I, you were asking me also in show prep if I've ever done any shows on this topic before. So for listeners interested, I'd like you all to know that, yes, we have done shows on this before. We've had Robert Gagnon and Tom Gilson on to talk about real material on homosexuality. We've had the some ex-homosexuals on the show before and uh, for transgenderism we had Ward Heyer on talking about his uh, same sex regret or sex change regret and, and within of next couple of months or so I, I, in three weeks we're going to have uh, Rosaria Butterfield coming on talking about homosexuality and then that sometime in July I believe we're going to have Sam Andretas coming on about his book Engendered now we're talking about the book Born This Way here. Now, you start with uh, Sigmund Freud, which, yes. of course, is the place to really start many times with psychology because he was such an influential figure. But some people say, uh, you know, isn't Sigmund Freud kind of debunked nowadays that he's not really taken as seriously as he was in the past? Well, that's a great question. And Sigmund Freud basically suggested that homosexuality was the result, especially in males, of some dysfunction in the mother-father-child triad. Mm-hmm. And the idea was pretty uh, predominant up and through the late 60s and early 70s, and that was the idea that dominated in American psychiatry and psychology up until the change in the DSM in 1973, when the American Psychiatric State uh, Association removed homosexuality as a disease. It was no longer classified as a disease. And the different versions of the DSM have, have continued to modify and morph in what they say about homosexuality, moving more and more towards just saying this is an acceptable good behavior which should be embraced. And the best thing you can do for someone's mental health is help them embrace this. But Freud actually says some things which are accurate and he says some things which are wrong and he says some things which are just frankly bizarre. Yeah. So, first of all, we as Christians can affirm, and I think we all sort of intuitively know that if something goes really, really dysfunctionally wrong in a family between a mother and a father and a child, if a mother or father are sexually abusive or if there is this uh, the stereotype in the past of a homosexual male in particular was a dominating mother and a passive father. And fact is, that's probably probably true in some cases for some folks uh, struggling with homosexuality. The problem is it's not true in every case because you can have people on your show that are engaged in the same-sex lifestyle right now 
that grew up in homes where dad really loved mom and mom really loved dad, and yet they're homosexual today. So it does, mm-hmm. Freud's theory is helpful at a couple of points for some people. So that's part of my critique of some of the reparative therapy. This is really a di- issue of difference between psychotherapy and then people who see a more biological basis for psychi- psychiatric problems. It's a bigger debate in American psychology and psy- uh, psychiatry today. So part of the shift uh, under, undermining the uh, or underneath the, the change in 1973 was a move away from psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Now, his worldview was atheistic. If you read uh, Future of an Illusion mm-hmm. or if you read um, Moses and his discontents and some of these things, he, he just says the idea of God the Father is this wanting, this longing that we've imposed on the universe. It's infantile. It's a holdover from these different stages. And some of the things I mentioned, some of the things he says are bizarre. Freud's big contribution as far as sexual development and theories of sex is that even infants are sexual. So when a child is nursing at mother's breast, this is sexual. When a child's sucking his thumb, this is sexual. So he sexualizes small children. And uh, then he goes to these different uh, stages of, of development. The question of which all those things are true, uh, I'm skeptical of a lot of them. The Underneath much of this, again, is just his worldview of uh, secular atheism and a very strong and, a, in fact, what I would say a hostile stance towards Christianity. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't want to make a poisoning the well argument, uh, but it's really hard to d- separate his theories from his, his worldview, which is his atheism. So he says some things which are probably accurate, which Christians can can say, well, yeah, if, my, if that relationship with mom and dad's really messed up, strange things are going to happen in kids' lives. And we, there's probably some of your listeners who can tell you they, they had an abusive mother, an abusive father, or the, the relationship was really jacked up between their parents in some way. And they'll tell you that they still struggle today because of that. So that part of what Freud said is, is true, but, but it's hard to say that his theories are true for everyone who's struggling with homosexuality. In fact, I'm pretty convinced they're not true for everyone struggling with homosexuality. Now, I like what you also said about how some of it is true and some of it isn't. And you don't want poison aware because I think too often some Christians can look at someone who produces a study of some sort and such and say, well, they're an atheist, so right. we, we can't really trust that information. I mean, if right. someone's a Christian, we're like, oh, that information is gospel. Right. Well, I mean, that certainly doesn't hold water. I mean, it, uh, if the guy, if the guy over at the power plant, we have a large nuclear power plant over in uh, Kansas, not too awful far from here. It's uh, a ways away. But I don't really, to a certain degree, I'm more concerned. Is that guy a good engineer right. when he's doing his job, as opposed to is he is he born again or not? Because if I've got a born again guy that doesn't know a thing about nuclear engineering and an atheist who knows all about it. I'd rather have the atheist who knows yes. engineering in the plant. Now, of course, the best case scenario is believing on Christ and also being really, really good at what you do. That's what we want. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, sec- lost people and, and atheists can arrive at truth. Uh, the problem is the what they do with the, the truth they find. And th- but the whole question is how much of Freud's theory of childhood sexual development with all these different stages, how much of that is true? And some of what he just says – I really am. Uh, I'm hard pressed to affirm. So, now, what did he say about the morality of homosexuality? Yeah, I think he was okay with it. There was a famous letter he wrote 
to a Amer- letter to an American mother. It was published posthumously. And he basically told she wrote him some anonymous mother wrote him saying, hey, my son's homosexual. I want you to help. And he wrote back. And this is at the end of his life after he'd gone through lots of different theories about homosexuality. And that would be a fun study to trace the trajectory of Freud's thought about homosexuality throughout his life because he he moved in and out of different theories as time went along. But at the end of his life, he basically says, well, I don't know if it's any great harm or any great evil is going to come out of it. Um, I, uh, he actually suggested, I have a quote here. He suggest, he expressed strong doubt that homosexuality could be changed to a heterosexual orientation. And so here's what he, he said at one point, such an achievement, the removal of genital inversion or homosexuality in my experience, is never an easy matter. In general, to undertake to convert a fully developed homosexual into a heterosexual does not offer much more prospect of success than the reverse, except for that good practical reason the latter is never attempted. What he's saying is nobody ever tries in therapy to train a heterosexual into a homosexual. So I think at the end of his life, he was saying, well, it's okay, and if that's what people want to do, just help them adapt to it. Mm-hmm. Now, if there were some question about anything with um, Freud, there's much less when we move over to the next figure, which is Kinsey. Now, a few decades or so ago, maybe one or two ago, there was a movie I had Liam Neeson playing the role of Kinsey, I think. Right. And people look at Kinsey as this great pioneer in sexual research, and this great hero. Um, he was really a pretty twisted individual, wasn't he? Well, I... Um at the danger of a using emotionally loaded language, I'll just say he was a very nasty person who did nasty things and documented other people doing nasty things. He turned the Kinsey Sex Institute, and I am quoting Jones's biography, and Jones, uh, I don't think, would affirm my moral ethical stance, but he said that Kinsey and his colleagues were trying to turn the Kinsey Institute into a sexual utopia so, I, again, it's hard to separate his data from from his own lifestyle. He was searching for approval for his own sexual proclivities. Uh, he, they're, they're videoing each other having sex up in the, the um, attic of Kinsey's home. And then his wife would produ- make like juice and cookies for them during the break time and things. Uh, he videotaped, or videotaped, I'm sorry, they didn't have video then, but he filmed himself uh, doing sadomasochistic acts, and these things are kept on file there at the Kinsey Institute. Um, so the Kinsey study itself, his worldview comes out. And so, again, I I realize when you go to character, it's always a struggle because what we want to do is just say, well, what does the data say? Well, frankly, in Kinsey's case, I can't separate the data from his own personal character. That To me, they, they blend in and out because what he does in both sexual behavior in the human male from 1948 and sexual behavior in the human female from 1953. So he'll give you page after page after page of all these charts. And then without telling you, he shifts into his personal opinion. And he just tells you what he thinks or the team members are writing there. Pomeroy and these other people are writing what they think. And all these things are blended together. Uh, even secular people back in the 50s were criticizing his report for doing that. It's hard to know where the data starts and just his 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 data ends and where his opinion starts. And so he's sexually avant-garde. He is the father of the American sexual revolution. And he wanted to 
I think, destroy Judeo-Christian sexual ethics. That was part of his game plan. Interesting thing is when he was a young man, he was supposedly a devout Christian, taught Sunday mm-hmm. school and Eagle Scout, all these sort of things. And uh, when he's going to Bowden College, he's apparently still a Christian, but while he's doing his doctorate at Harvard is when he walks away from the faith. Um, so Kinsey's – his data, frankly, is so bad at points, it can almost be a straw man. I really struggle with whether or not to include his data in the book because sometimes – I met Christians when they talk about homosexuality, they bring up Kinsey's data, then they refute Kinsey, and in so doing, they feel like they've refuted the strongest arguments in favor of homosexuality, which is not true. So he can be almost a straw man in this punching bag that we as Christians take on. But I decided to address him because he's still cited from time to time. He still point people still point back to him as the father of of opening up and expanding the consciousness, if you will, on the morality of homosexuality. So that's why I included him. And, um, yeah, he's a bad guy. And even if he wasn't seen that way today, the same way he was back then, his influence on things like the American Psychiatric Association and such, it's still immense. Well, the Kinsey scale is still used all the time in studies, this scale from zero to six, Zero being completely heterosexual to six being completely homosexual with no heterosexual and everything in between. So that scale is still used a lot in studies. Of course, there's people out there that question the degree to which the scale accurately reflects where people are at and all those sort of things. But he, he gets cited a lot. He's still brought up. His biggest claim was that, well, if you've ever heard the, I should let me state it this way. If you've ever heard the claim, 10% of all people are gay. Yeah. That claim finds its origins in Kinsey's research. But that really wasn't what Kinsey claimed. Kinsey did not claim 10% of all people are gay. What he said was that 10% of all males between, uh, oh, their their middle age years, from like 16 to 50 or somewhere in that range, I don't have the exact number in front of me, are exclusively homosexual for at least three years of their life, which is an interesting and very distinct claim that you're claiming 10% of males are exclusively homosexual for three years. And if you stop and think about it, it's an odd claim. Why would you say exclusively homosexual for three years? So there's lots of reasons why some of the sources of his data. I think that really the biggest problem with his data is what you call volunteer bias, sample bias. And by that, it's the 1940s, and you're asking the average person on the street, hey, can I talk to you about your sex life? And they had hundreds of questions they'd ask these people in these interviews yeah. about what they do and what they don't do. A lot of people are going to say, hey, that's none of your business. But the person who says, yeah, I think I really would like to answer those questions is more open, is going to be more open to sexually adventuristic behavior, sexually adventurous behavior. And um, it's just going to skew the data you get that he oversampled prison inmates. I've heard some Christians wrongly say that all he did was sample prison inmates. That's not true. Fact is, we don't know how many prison inmates are in his sample, but we know there are a lot. Reisman guessed as many as 25%. I'm just not sure if that's true. I don't think it's higher than that. But it's enough that I think that it's where this exclusively homosexual for three-year claim sort of emerges from. So there's lots of problems with this data. The biggest problem being the childhood sexual abuse data in there. Mm -hmm. This whole question, he says in the uh, sexual behavior in the human male, says nine of their people – had observed children and sexual acts and these sort of things, some of them even with the adults, which is pedophilia and against the law, it's child molestation. 
Mm-hmm. By the way, it's what got Jerry Sandusky sent to jail and Joe Paterno fired. But mm-hmm. Kinsey's held as a hero. The, the Kinsey Institute now claims that all the data really came from one person. Uh, Reisman suggested that it was the Kinsey Institute employees themselves doing this. I rather suspect that's not true. What I suspect is, this is what I think. I think he was talking to a lot of nasty people that did nasty things. And so in that, he gets in with some child predators that tell him what they've done. And so he's getting data. He calls it data, but he's getting it from these people. The most bizarre point in his whole book, uh, beyond just the the vile nature of this childhood sexual data, is at one point he's even claiming they're getting data from graffiti on bathroom walls. And he's sad because he doesn't have more. So I don't know how that gets crunched into numbers, but at some point they're getting data from graffiti on bathroom walls. And he's using that to tell us how Americans think about sex in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah, and it's my understanding he didn't even have what would be called a valid statistician working on his research. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. But we move on from there, because we've got to move the book pretty quickly. Yeah. When, then we get to the American Psychiatric Association. Now, this is an organization we should all take seriously. And these are the greatest minds, and eventually they decide homosexuality should not be listed as a psychiatric disorder. And surely this is based on the best research they had at the time, right? Well, what, what Charles the Change was, uh, was really more political than scientific-driven, there was a study about homosexuality released uh, in the – it was actually produced in the 60s, but the Nixon administration stalled it, and it's finally released by the federal government, I think, in 72. I don't have the data in front of me. I mentioned it in the book. So there were some people that were suggesting that we change the stance on, on homosexuality, that people move to – that it's not as bad as people think it is. So – in 1969, the National Institutes of Mental Health Task Force on Homosexuality issued a report that suggested that we put an end to anti-sodomy laws, laws which criminalized homosexual behavior. So, so that was in the air, but you have to remember the era. This is the 1960s and 70s, so this is the free love generation. Mm-hmm. You get Roe v. Wade in 1973 as well. You get the Stonewall riots in 69. In December of 73, the American Psychiatric Association uh, changes their stance on on uh, homosexuality in the DSM. It's an interesting process what happened. If you remember in the 60s, you had people rioting, people shutting down campuses, students would riot and things like that. Well, the tactics which were used by anti-war protesters were actually picked up by homosexuals. So they're going into the American psychiatric meetings. They're climbing up on tables, shouting down speakers who who discussed therapies that they were using to try to help people overcome homosexuality. They're shouting them down, yelling them down. So it was it was really pressure from political activists that drove it as, as much as anything in the early 70s. But I can't stress enough this is all in the era of the sexual revolution. So the change that the APA finally embraced in 1973 and then in early 74 is all part and parcel of the sexual revolution. Uh, it's a lot of things going on at that time. And I, it's, again, Stonewall in 69, the Summer of Love in 67, Roe v. Wade in 73, early 73, then the change in the APA in late 73. It's a culture shift. Yeah. 
I was born in 1980. My wife was actually born in 1990, so there was a little bit of a time gap there and such. And I don't think we can really imagine how vastly different our world is because of what happened back in the 60s and 70s of the sexual revolution. Right. I can't stress enough. There's a lady a lot of Christians don't know about, but she was very influential. Her name was Evelyn Hooker, a psychologist at UCLA. And she did a landmark study in 1958 where she's looking at a a group of homosexuals she worked with. I think it's called the Medicine Society, which is a pro-homosexual advocacy group out of California. And she basically said, "Okay, people are saying homosexuals have all these issues and they're mentally unhealthy. She said the problem is all that data is based on homosexuals who are seeking psychotherapy or they're seeking psychiatric help. And she said, if you look at homosexuals who aren't seeking psychiatric help, actually their mental health is pretty good. It's not that much different. So that was a huge change. And her her, her influence is probably not appreciated by Christians in the way it should be. Interesting, when the Metropolitan Community Church dedicated their first building out in Los Angeles, oh, Troy Perry, their, their founding pastor, I don't remember the year, 72 or 73, they actually had Evelyn Hooker come there. She was at the dedication ceremony for the uh, Metropolitan Community Church. Yeah, and for those who don't know, the Metropolitan Community Church is one of the first major churches that came out to be gay-affirming, and their pastor was an open homosexual. Yeah, Troy Perry's an interesting guy. We could have a whole program just about him, but we'll move on. Yeah. So... I mean, did everyone go along nicely with this idea that homosexuality should just be accepted, or were there some holdouts to it? Well, there were, and there still are today. So what came out of this, if you, if our listeners have heard of reparative therapy and some of the people like North, yeah. then that really is the pushback on these changes, which people are still arguing about today. Of course, the modern, the the vast majority of modern psychiatry says it is wrong to try to help people change their sexual orientation. That's what they're going to tell you. Mm-hmm. And there, there's still a lot of data out there that indicate folks actively involved in the homosexual lifestyle statistically have a higher chance of more negative mental health outcomes than heterosexuals. So the question is, why is that? Mm-hmm. So what modern psychiatry today says, the reason is, is because of people like you and I, Nick, we're the reasons they have those those problems because we create a negative environment. If we could just get people like you and I, or you mentioned Rosaria Butterfield or, or, or uh, Gagnon, if we could just get all these people to be quiet, we could create an environment where these folks could live without any stress. So it's it, it's an interesting it's an interesting way to explain away some of the negative mental health outcomes that are often associated. But I want to stress, I want all our listeners to get, we're talking about homosexuality, but I I want everyone to get this. There are lots of negative mental health outcomes associated with all kind of sexual immorality once you get out of one man, one woman in marriage. Right. So it's not just with homosexuality, but I, I can take you to people whose lives have been shattered and they are emotional wrecks because of heterosexual sin. So one one frustration where I think the my homosexual friends have have a point is they they say you guys always jump on us about these things going wrong in our heterosexual lives but um, excuse me homosexual lives but you never talk about heterosexuals to a certain degree I think they've got a point mm-hmm. and I'll just give you one example the the whole issue of Christians living together outside of wedlock 
We used to have this policy called don't ask, don't tell in the military. Well, there's lots of churches today that have a don't ask, don't tell policy about whether or not their young couples are living together. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, there's lots of negative outcomes associated with living together before marriage. I know Time Magazine had an article that tried to uh, refute that maybe a year or two back. I don't remember when. The fact is, the majority of the data says if you want to have a successful marriage where good things happen, one way to make that happen is not live together before you marry. Well, why am I bringing all this up? Because homosexuals feel like they get singled out sometimes and things like that get shoved under the carpet. And I think they're right. So we as Christians have to stress when we talk about homosexuality, we're not picking on homosexuals. What we are saying is this is one part of a holistic argument about sexual health and sexual purity that we're making. It just happens to be the part where our culture is arguing right now. You know, something I've said to people before is that if we want to get after the world for not treating marriage properly and to not honoring it properly, could be they start doing that because we started doing that first. Yeah, that's true. And just a month or two ago, I was at our church. Our church had several small groups. We were at the house of women. I was talking to their daughter, and she was talking about this guy that she's been dating for a while, and says, well, I'd like us to get engaged, but I don't see that happening. I said, why not? And so we started this conversation. For too long, I could tell things were going wrong. And her dad was seeing right here, hearing all this, and hearing me talk about all the dangers of living together, of sex before marriage, and things like that, etc. And afterwards, he was very appreciative. You know, I've been trying to tell all these kinds of things for so long, and here someone else comes and just says it, and that means so much. Uh, it, it really bothers me when I see people doing things like living together and such beforehand. It, it, it's just really cheapening the marriage union. Well, and I, it's the, the challenge is in the Christian life is how to live for Jesus without being a Pharisee. Right. And so we don't want to sit as an inquisition on everyone. But what we do want to say is the same thing that Paul said to a very sexually confused culture. In Corinth, the definitive passage on sexual ethics in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And hey, listen, the body is for the Lord. It's not for sexual immorality. We're to flee sexual immorality. So he said that to Corinth. Well, we're living in modern-day Corinth, and we want to say the same thing at all these different issues. But to get back to your question here about the APA, the, the AP, what I'm going to say as well is sometimes we demonize all the folks in the APA. I am... Um, just to, to kind of tip my hand about a debate that's going on in Christianity, I, I am not neuthetic. I hold more of an integrationist approach, though many of my Southern Baptist buddies are neuthetic and, and they believe in a Bible-based uh, mental health approach only. Mm. And I can understand where they're coming from, and actually they make some good points to which we all need to listen about sin and, and its effects and, and spiritual disciplines and how we need to integrate those into um, positive mental health outcomes. But I have found that many psychiatrists actually deeply care about their clients. They, they want them to achieve a level of health and wholeness. So they care about people. And I'm not saying they don't care. And I'm not saying that they're evil people. I am saying that in many cases when it comes to sexual ethics, some psychiatrists are encouraging people to do things which I think are spiritually destructive and do not lead to wholeness to health and to the sort of life that Jesus Christ wants people to have. So uh, it just really depends on the mental health provider, and you have to vet them very carefully. 
But I want to I want to stress the degree to which I've been impressed that mental health professionals want to help people. Just the question is, um, is telling someone to embrace a transgender identity, telling someone to embrace a homosexuality, a homosexual identity, is that in the long run actually going to be helpful to them? Well, the church for 2000 years has said, well, no, Now we didn't have all these. I say we, I'm speaking royally for every Christian over 2,000 years. We haven't had all these psychiatric, psychological terms. So that degree, some of these things are new. But Christians knew, they, they, in every generation, they've understood people that have said, this is what I really am and this is what I really want to do. They're, they're, Christians have always heard these sort of things. So to that degree, some of these arguments are not new. A very wise man once said, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh-huh. So um, I, I want to stress, though, that... We, we don't want to just castigate all mental health providers and say they're all evil, which I've heard some Christians do. And I, I want to say, I, if someone's struggling with the, at a deep level with, um, oh, if they're struggling with something like bipolar disorder or um, something extremely challenging and, and really frustrating, like, um, Oh, going into these manic phases where their body just gets out of control. There is a, a necessary and a helpful place for medication and psychiatric help to help manage those things. Right. And so I see that and I affirm that. What I'm talking about, though, is when you get into morals and ethics, a client-centered approach that says, well, I want to help the client discover what best fits them. Um, that can become idolatrous. That, and what we would call that philosophically is radical moral autonomy at points. And it's the very mindset which Paul criticizes in Romans 1, 18 through 32. So uh, we want to be very careful about these things. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, my wife has a number of psychiatric conditions and going to get medication is a regular part of it. And she's had some psychiatrists that have been really awesome for her. She's had some that have been offered. She's had some that have been so bad. I've gone and filed complaints with the office and said, I are never to go near her ever again. And such. Yeah. And yeah, we do get medication here for her. And I don't see any difference between if you've got a chemical imbalance and taking a medication then if you've got a sickness and taking a prescription from your doctor. Well, listen, when I was a chaplain in the Army, I, I, I worked with some uh, Army psych docs with some soldiers that were struggling with things, I found them extremely, extremely committed to helping these soldiers overcome the difficulties in their life. And I was deeply impressed by that. Now, some of them had a different worldview. It's interesting. Many of them actually shared a Christian or a Judeo-Christian worldview. Some of them didn't. But I always got respect from them, and I tried to give respect back to them. They, they always seemed to be very encouraging to me. And one of the things I heard from the psych docs many times was, well, the first person the soldiers are going to come to you is not come to is not us. They're going to talk to their chaplain first. And so I, at the same time, I tried to have a real acute awareness of where my, my strengths and weaknesses were at. And when something was outside of my lane, if I was dealing with the problem that was out of my lane, and I had no problem with referring to, to the Army docs. Mm. Uh, really, the next chapter is – is probably uh, after I get out of APA is really where the heart of the argument is at is about brain plasticity. Can we talk about that for a moment? Absolutely. Now, if I'm correct, brain plasticity is about the idea that the brain can be changed and shaped 
over time. You know, I, well, well, the 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 degree to which uh, our connections. It's not. There's lots to the brain, right? The brain has lots of parts, but the the connections between the neurons and and how new pathways can be formed, old pathways can be discarded, and these sort of things. It's a fascinating study. And here's what I want to stress. Research has shown in regards to pornography that I'm borrowing from a guy named Struthers who teaches at Wheaton a very good book called Wired for Intimacy, How male, well, how Pornography Hijacks the Male Brain. Right. He wasn't really talking about homosexuality, but I, I picked up on some of his ideas. And I don't know what he would say about my book, so I have to give that disclosure. He may or may not agree with me. But Struthers said something very fascinating, that what happens is, if you think about it, the brain can be compared to a forest where when people walk through the forest, they start making trails through the forest. And the more times and the more people go down a path, a particular trail gets deeper and wider and deeper and wider and deeper and wider Mm -hmm. until eventually you have this clearly identifiable trail going through the forest. He says the brain's a lot like that, that these neural pathways – Especially when it comes to pornography, what happens is uh, every viewing of pornography by, by men builds stronger and deeper neural pathways. And this is why it can be such a, a, a very, very difficult addiction to overcome because of these strong reinforced pathways down to the pleasure center in the brain. Right. right. Well, my question is the degree to which something like that could happen with all sorts of sexual immorality. And I'm not just talking about pornography or just homosexuality, but all sorts of sexual behaviors which are inconsistent, but also about sexually healthy behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can build new pathways. One, uh, one psychologist friend of mine, he was not a psychiatrist, but a psychologist, suggested that one reason why scripture memory is so helpful in overcoming uh, temptation, especially sexual temptation, is you get so used to dumping people and into these neural pathways. And so every time you meet a woman, if you're a guy, if you've been looking at lots of pornography, every woman is a potential porn star in the the dirty mind that you have, these thoughts that you have running through your mind, and you start evaluating people that way. Well, the one reason why scripture memory is helpful is because instead of viewing people through that, you, you're basically splicing around this this uh, neural pathway and you're creating new pathways and so instead of thinking of someone in a, a dirty and a vulgar way you start focusing on scripture and thinking of them in a wholesome and a holy and a godly way so i'm not just saying uh, scripture memorization is going to help someone overcome all sorts of levels of difficulties but what i am saying is what we're really talking about with brain plasticity is how the soul and the body interact when we're when we're fighting temptation. And this is something Christians have been talking about for, for a long, long time. And we do know this, that there's no temptation that has taken us except that which is common to man. So temptation is common to all of us, but God will provide a way out. So regardless of how strong the temptation seems, there's always a way to overcome it. And um, I'm not clear on what studies are out there about brain plasticity and homosexuality. I haven't found a lot. It would be interesting to see if someone started mining that sort of data and doing more research on that and see what came out of it. Okay, so for anyone listening out there who's in this sphere and is wanting to have an idea for some research and such, you've just been given one, so let's go for it. Um, <laughs> All you need is a research grant, several yeah. hundred thousand dollars, and there you go. Oh, there you go. That's it. And who doesn't have that? Yeah, 
I like also be, how you said about how our brains can be trained for good things as well, because yes. in, in many cultures, the marriages have always been arranged. The bride and groom don't even know each other until the wedding night. And I thought, I think the way that's supposed to work, Matt, one is because sex then becomes a grand unifier and the guy gets a message of, hey, if I want this really, really good thing again, I better be treating this girl right. And, well, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I can't stress enough. To, <laughs> this is not a program about marital health um, specifically, but what I would say is that. Um, if if every husband listening wants wants more loving, then he better be sweet to mama twenty four seven. Because if he's acting like a jerk to her, she's not going to feel very loving and affectionate when his desire for tenderness comes around. But yes, the the point be the train the bank we can train ourselves for holiness. Yeah. And again, we're we're back to this whole issue of really from Christian theological standpoint, how does the body and the soul work together? How does that happen? Christians have been wrestling about that for, for a long time. What we want to stress, though, is that we are volitional moral agents, and we can make choices. God has established a moral universe where we can make choices. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what do we want to do with those choices? And really, the chapter 5 is probably, when I deal with prenatal hormones, is probably the, the most common argument I'm hearing today about, about homosexuality and born this way arguments. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea, and the idea is this when it comes to prenatal hormones. Here's the idea. I'm going to oversimplify for the sake of discussion. Okay. But at point A in prenatal development, when the baby is growing, the uh, the hormones fire off, and a a baby develops either male genitalia or female genitalia. The theory is that at a later point in utero, while the baby is in the womb, the brain then gets uh, the opposite hormones. And so you have a child that received male hormones at point A in development and uh, developed male genitalia. But at a later point in development, the brain was, was washed, if you will, or bathed in female hormones and thus accounts for the same sex attraction. And the same thing would be true with females. You have a girl that who, her genitalia develop in a female-specific way in utero early on in uh, development, and then at a later point in utero, she gets male hormones washing the brain, and thus this explains her same-sex attraction. So that theory and that idea is getting a lot of traction with secular people. And the, the question is the degree to which is that that, uh, that is true. Right. And so it would be illegal and unethical to perform experiments on children to prove whether or not this is true. Right. So what can we, what data do we have? And so the data emerges from two sources. It emerges from experiments on animals, specifically rodents, and then what we would call natural experiments. These are children born with disorders of sexual development. So which one do you want to talk about first? Do you want to talk about the animal experiments or do you want to talk about the DSDs? Let's start with the animals. Right. Well, we should stop and have a moment of silence for all the things that poor mice and rodents have been through in the name of science. And so basically what's happened, I'm going to oversimplify, is numerous studies, researchers have taken tiny rats or mice, 
And while they are still growing in their mother's womb, if you have a little male uh, mouse growing in his mother's womb or male rat growing in his mother's womb, they would then in utero give this uh, this mouse the wrong hormones to see what that mouse would act like. And as you might imagine, when this mouse was fully grown, you would have a male mouse that would do practice lordosis, which is raising his rear end as if to be mounted the way a girl mouse or girl rat does when she wants to mate. Mm-hmm. And so people would say, aha, we have a homosexual mouse. And so this data has been used to say, well, look, we've seen that if these mice or these rats get the wrong hormones in utero, then they display uh, or excuse me, they display sexual behavior, which is inconsistent with their natal sex. Mm -hmm. So you have little male rats that act like girls. They raise their rear end to be mounted. And then sometimes you have little girl rats. They did the experiments on them and gave them the wrong hormones in utero. And then they want to mount other um, other girl rats. And so that that has an intuitive appeal to our culture. But I want to give two critiques of it. Uh, the first one is animals act instinctively. And what often isn't mentioned is these little male rats that got the wrong hormones in utero. People say, oh, they'll, they'll present themselves to be mounted by other male rats. But what they don't tell you is if the researcher puts his hand or her hand down in the cage and starts stroking his back, he'll do the same thing. He'll do lordosis for her or him as well. It's just an instinctual thing. And so rats are not volitional moral creatures like animals. They are instinctive. Mm-hmm. Another thing I would say is I think to a certain degree these arguments have more sway in our culture because we're several generations removed from an agricultural agrarian society. If you've ever spent any time on a farm – you have seen stallions that wanted on some day would run up to another stallion and try to jump on his back. You've seen uh, seen cows that might try to mount another cow. I mean, if you've been around farms, you've seen this sort of bizarre behavior. But we live in a culture where what most people know about animals is from a Disney film, or is from the uh, uh, from the uh, Disney Channel, or or. Um, National Geographic or something. Sometimes I feel like telling people, okay, you do know animals don't talk, right? They don't run around <laughs> singing beautiful songs. They, they don't do that. They act instinctively. But it's only – so I'm telling you, for thousands of years of human history, people have seen animals do things like this on the farm. But it's only been in the last 50 years that people have said, hey, well, look, th- these animals are displaying this, this sort of behavior. Maybe it's okay for humans as well. The other thing I would say is beyond animals acting just instinctively and volitionally is um, the degree to which some of this is grounded in evolutionary theory, especially with rats. There's a part of the rat brain called the sexually dimorphic nucleus, and the idea is that there's a part of the human brain that is homologous to that part of the rat brain. I, I won't get into all the details, but there's an element of sense. Since rats and humans have a common ancestor, we can learn some. If, if you accept the meta narrative of uh, naturalistic Darwinism, then rats and humans have a common ancestor at some point. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, human sexual behavior, you can learn something about it from rats, where we as Christians are going to have a, a lot of pushback on that, that assumption. Yeah. I, I really like you brought up the thing about the animals because there are so many people who look and say, that, well, you know, you see animals doing this. I, I can't but remember that uh, 
a meme someone shared once with. Homosexuality is found in 450 species of animals. Homophobia is only found in one. Which one's unnatural now? Right. Right. And so that's, uh, there's, oh, what was the book? Uh, Biological Diversity. I can't remember the name of the author. I've read it. But the guy claimed there was, he he tried to go through 450 different cases of animals that showed some sort of homosexual behavior. Then the, the thing is you have to question some of his findings, the degree to which there's political agendas in some of these things. Some of the stuff he starts talking about two male penguins raising a child and they have transgender behavior and all he's really reading human behavior back in animals and that's if it's if it's really dicey to read animal behavior and make inferences about humans based on animal behavior, it is even more dicey to make inferences about animal behavior, animal behavior based on trendy 2017 political talking points. Are you talking about a Bruce Bagamir? Yeah, that's his name. Okay, that's I just, right. I just looked it up here. I, I always tell people, say, well, if you want to go that route, talking about what animals do, you know animals often eat their own young, right? Right. <laughs> right. Well, yes, animals do any number of things that we wouldn't want to mimic. So now the the issue about the natural experiments, as I said, the protocols and research protocols in place here in the West preclude anyone from doing experiments from proving the prenatal hormone theory. However, some people are born with diagnosable disorders, one called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, CAH, which occurs to different levels. And it's most interesting when it occurs in females for our question, for the issue that we're dealing with. Congenital adrenal hyperplasia, basically what it means is in girls who have it, and it's a diagnosable genetic uh, anomaly that occurs, what happens with some of these girls is their their genitalia gets very masculinized. Mm -hmm. And so we know that in utero they received an excessive amount of male hormones because of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. This is diagnosable. We know it happened. And without being crude, but I just say what happens is their little clitoris can take on phallic-like characteristics. And this, there are several different diagnosable stages of CAH. It occurs more uh, strongly in some girls as opposed to others who have it. But we know that these girls got the wrong or the we know they got male hormones in utero. We know they did. So the question is, what are their sex? What is their sexual orientation? What's their sexual identity like? And so these these kids who've uh, been diagnosed with CAH. Oh, bless their heart. I mean, they just get interviewed and asked and people are always poking and prodding emotionally. What's life like for you? And so I'm sure sometimes they just want to be left alone and try to live their life. But that said, What the data shows is a higher percentage than normal of girls with CAH claim to have a homosexual identity, but the vast majority as adults have a heterosexual identity. Mm -hmm. So let me state that again. Of girls who have CAH, a higher percentage of them claim than than normal. It depends how many people are homosexual. That's a whole nother debate. 
Depends, are you defining it only by identity or by behavior? If you define it by behavior in the last year, the numbers go way down. Mm-hmm. If you take the Williams Institute's numbers at UCLA, they're going to say between 2 and 3% of the U.S. population is either gay or bisexual. And then if you look at the percentage of that, which is exclusively homosexual, it's going to be much lower. But if you look at these CAH girls, Oh, the numbers are all over the place, and I don't want to give one because I don't remember it off the top of my head. But a a greater percentage of them than the normal population self-identify as homosexual. But the vast majority identify as heterosexual females. However, of those who identify as heterosexual females, more of them will claim that they at some point had some thought of same-sex attraction when they're growing up. And the question is, here's another question, to what degree is this data caused by the socialization effects unique to being raised with, um, with unique genitalia? Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but you can imagine a child that is born with masculine, a girl who's born with masculinized genitalia, then she may be treated differently. And to what degree does that contribute to perhaps a later uh, same-sex uh, homosexual orientation mm-hmm. and then to what degree can we tease out what is just purely a genetic biological effect the point being though we know these girls were exposed to male hormones and the vast majority are heterosexual but a larger percentage than normal are homosexual so that shows that at some level prenatal hormones have an effect but it hardly proves the prenatal hormone theory. In fact, I, I'm prepared to say it argues against it. It shows that prenatal hormones have some sort of effect, but to what degree do these prenatal hormones have an organizing effect on someone's later sexual identity? We really just don't know. I think that's the right answer. We just don't know. listening to the People Waters podcast, we got J.I. and Branch here talking about his book, Born This Way, Homosexuality, Science, and the Scriptures. If you're here next week, and we had this guy on earlier, but unfortunately we had some technical difficulties, recording equipment wasn't working, so we had to cut short the interview. We're going to have him back on again, it's going to be an hour interview this time, so he can give us, we're going to have Jason Georges on. He's going to be talking about his book, Ministry and Honor Shame Cultures, which if you're familiar with this podcast, you know I'm totally into studying the whole honor-shame idea that's found in the Bible and such. But for now, let's get back to Dr. Branch and his book on homosexuality. Now, is this part of these DSD studies you were talking about, or is that something Yeah, entirely- disorders of sexual development. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Another term that's used is intersex. So there are lots of DSDs, and these kids have... Um, have enormous challenges that the rest of us don't have. Mm-hmm. I, I will just say, making I'm going to make an aside. In the past, the theory was to to have corrective surgery on kids with DSDs as early as possible. 
That may be prudent in some cases, especially if urinary tract function is in, uh, is hindered or sometimes even uh, rectal function is hindered by these DSDs. If there's you, you want you want to have a child has to have good rectal function and good urinary tract function. Right. But uh, some folks are suggesting now, and this seems to be the direction which uh, healthcare providers are, are leading. Some of these DSDs, which may seem extremely odd in a baby's body, the child's body may kind of grow into it, and it may not be quite so uh, bad as they're older. And there are reports of kids who had corrective surgery when they were young that had lots of sex, uh, problems with sexual comfort when they're older, even as married adults. And so the question is, what's the best time to do these surgeries? As you imagine, uh, all the the nerve endings in that area of the body is extremely sensitive, and it takes a surgeon of immense skill to do these surgeries. So the question is, what's the best time? So I'm all about what's the best outcome for that kid. And if the best outcome is to put off some sort of corrective surgery, it may be that for some of these kids, they say, hey, look, I'm a boy, but I have – I know I'm a boy, but I have some genitalia that I was born with that are not quite like everyone else's, but I'm living okay with it. Yeah, I don't know if corrective surgery is needed. If you have a girl that has genitalia, she says, listen, my husband knows all about it. We're completely faithful to each other. We're Christ followers, but I was born with CAH, and my genitalia don't quite look like everyone else's, but I know I'm a girl, and I know that I'm faithful to my husband. And you know what? I'm just not going to have corrective surgery. My life is working out okay. I, I don't know that there's any moral imperative that they have to have corrective surgery. The, the key question is, what's the best outcome for those kids living in the situation they have? And here's the challenge. Homosexuals and transgender folks will take the case of intersex. I, I really prefer the term DSD as opposed to intersex because intersex can get kind of politically loaded. But nonetheless, They'll take these cases of these kids, and I said, well, Branch, you're showing mercy to them. Uh, I, that's, that's, we've got the same thing. It's the same thing. We're born this way. Well, no, and here's why. Cases of DSDs are clearly diagnosable. You can do a test, and you know this kid has CAH. This kid has androgen insensitivity syndrome. This kid has 5-alpha reductase. We know what the, the scientists know what goes wrong. It's identifiable. It's many of these are traceable to a, a gene that that goes awry or doesn't code properly, and so they're diagnosable. Nothing like that has been found for transgenderism and homosexuality. It, they're not diagnosable like these DSDs are. So I I don't put them in the same category, and uh, I think Christians need to be aware of that. The the degree to which DSDs often get leveraged in debates about homosexuality and transgenderism. Yeah, I think it seems odd, speaking as someone who's a non-specialist in this sphere, to look and say, well, here's a case of someone who's born with genitalia that are clearly different and such. This person should be the standard for everyone else. Right, and so what? there's, there's a danger in making exceptions, make, building your rule based on an exception. Right. And so what I want is a rule that cover, and that's what the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us rules that cover life. We understand that living in a fallen world, some people deal with situations that uh, don't fit the general rule. So you have someone that's a D, that has a DSD, 
I think the question is, based on what the Bible says about gender and based on the creation narrative, there are two genders. So part of my pushback with the intersex community is they're saying, well, we just want to be identified as a third gender. And I think that's wrong. I don't think we go there. I think what we say is no. You're dealing with effects of the fall that the rest of us don't deal with. And so I have great sympathy and mercy for you. But at the same time, we know the creation standard is there's two genders. There's not a third option. So the question is, given your unique medical situation, which is the gender that best fits your situation? I think that's what we say about DSDs. Now, as soon as I say that, I have to hasten to say, well, some people say, oh, well, look, I, I've got the same thing. I've got the same thing. I was born with a, a male brain and a female body. You can't prove that. The, the data out there about brain differences between homosexuals and heterosexuals is, frankly, just not as robust as homosexuals want to make it to be. The findings have been extremely discreet, and they seem to be limited to the sample of people with whom you're dealing with. It's hard to then project those across the general population. So, and then the whole other issue is, are those? this goes back to the issue of brain plasticity, are the, and again, you want to be careful because there's always different parts of the brain. But then the question is, are the differences that we're seeing in these brains, are they because of an innate brain difference? Or is it a brain difference that results from imbibing a certain behavior? And it may be a little bit of both, just to tell you the truth. But no one has, what I want to stress, when you're talking about the average person on the street who says, I'm homosexual, I'm transgender, no one has found data for that where it's diagnosable. You can't predict. There, there is nothing out there that says, I can predict a child's going to be homosexual or transgender. No one has that power. Why? Well, they've looked to find out if they could, and the, the data is not robust enough to do that. When the data is not robust enough to do that, that tells you there's a problem with the whole born this way argument, that something else is going on. In fact, I don't think it's just something else. I think some things are going on. And we're, again, we're dealing with human behavior. There are lots of variables that that feed into this infinite, infinitely complex thing we call being human. So biology and genetics are part of that variable, but they're not the whole show. And um, so the data is just not as robust as homosexuals want to make it. The born this way is a nice oversimplification because it cuts all other arguments off at the knees. It just says, well, I'm born this way. And so they say, well, well, no, you're, the data doesn't show that. The data, there's nothing like, I can tell in utero, you can tell if a child's going to have androgen insensitivity syndrome or 5-alpha reductase or, cat, or, or uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Those things can be predicted. You can't do that with homosexuality or transgender. The, the data is ne not that robust. It has extremely weak predictive value. Mm -hmm. And when it does, then you have to question the whole born this way theory, which is what I'm doing. My major claims, and I'm not a scientist, but as I look at the data, Here's my major claim. There are some variables that correlate with a higher incidence of same-sex attraction and homosexual identity, but there are nothing, there are no variables that can be proved to be causative. So and correlation doesn't equal causation. If if I could have the power to do one thing for every uh, minister of the gospel right now, 
I would have someone give them a granite stone and engraved on that granite stone, I would have the words correlation doesn't equal causation because you're going to need that for tons of studies about all sorts of human behavior that's going to come out in the next 20 to 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly true about homosexuality. I, and that what what happens is most of the scientists are actually pretty honest. Um, and the peer review process gets a lot of flack from Christians. And I think some of our critique of the peer review process needs to be reined in because we look stupid sometimes when we start criticizing yeah. things we don't know. But a lot of that peer review process, you know what? It's really, really helpful. And when they are publishing these articles in peer-reviewed journals, they say the right things about their data often. They'll say, our data has weak predictive value. Our data is limited by sample size. Our data, it it shows what they'll effectively say is what we're basically saying. We we found some correlation at some level between this variable and people who have a same-sex identity. And, And they'll typically say, but it's weak. Invariably, what happens is the press picks up on it and the press starts talking causation. Yeah. And no one has proven causation, and the press gets it wrong almost all the time. It's, it's, it's quite maddening, really. That's got to be so unusual. I mean, none of us are really used to the press taking something in the media and just going crazy with it and blowing it out of proportion. That's yeah, yes. so Your sarcasm. Odd. <laughs> sarcasm is well appreciated. Yeah, I, you know, when you talk about the transgender thing, it sounds to me also like the whole mindset is putting itself in a corner. It's because on one hand, we're told, yeah, homosexuals are born this way. It's not going to change. Give a repair to therapy. But uh, your gender, yeah, that can change any day of a week. That's entirely fluid. You know, you made that's an interesting point. So, if I could, beyond the 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 in brain research, the most frequently cited claim that I read, and I listen, I I haven't weighed all the data, I haven't weighed, gone through every website, but just my experience when it comes to brain differences, the one I hear most frequently is Simon Levay's claim about a part of the hypothalamus called the interstitial nuclei of the anterior hypothalamus. There are four cell groups there, and he focuses on cell group three. So it's called the INAH3. And so in 1991, he did some research on cadavers, uh, people uh, voluntarily giving their bodies to science. And he's looking at this part of the brain. I won't bore you with all the details. The reason he's looking at that part of the brain goes back to research on rats and rodents in the late 70s and early 80s. But but he had reasons for looking at that part of the brain. brain. It didn't uh, just jump out of nowhere. And so what he claimed was in his cadavers, he had 16 heterosexual males, 19 homosexual males, and six females, which he said were heterosexual. And he's measuring the INAH3. Just an aside, that is a, a task in itself. If you could imagine, when, when I try to describe this part of the brain, it's not an appendage. It's, it's, uh, it's not a mass. It's a cluster of cells there in the, the hypothalamus. And so that's what it is, just a cluster of cells. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a difficult area to measure. It doesn't mean it can't be done. It means it's challenging to be done. But that, that set aside. What he claimed was this. In his sample of cadavers, the INAH3 in heterosexual males was about twice as large as it was in heterosexual females, and it was twice, about twice as large 
as it was in homosexual males. This is his claim. He was claiming that homosexual males have an INAH3 that is the same size as females, thus accounting for their same-sex attraction. And this gets repeated. So that was uh, 1991. It's 26 years later. And so let me say a couple of things about LeVay's claim. First of all, if you look at his own data, his own data actually refutes the born this way argument to a, a strong degree. And let me explain why. There were some hom- uh, heterosexual males in his sample who had an INAH3 size that was similar to the majority of the homosexual males, yet they were heterosexual. What that means is just having an INAH3 of a particular size doesn't guarantee you're going to be homosexual. It is not sufficient to cause homosexuality. Also, there were some homosexuals in his study who had an INAH3 size identical to the majority of the heterosexual males, yet they were um, um, still homosexual. That What that means is a particular INAH3 size is not necessary for homosexuality. So an INAH3 size, LaVey's own data proves, is neither necessary nor sufficient for a homosexual identity. I can't stress how important that is. But other people tried to replicate it. Most significantly, some guys in 2000 came close. But what they found was that actually that homosexuals and heterosexual males have the same number of neurons at the INAH3, but they tend to be more tightly bundled uh, in homosexuals. The long story short is this. It is now 2017, and in the 26 years since then, there has been no clear replication of LaVey's data, and people have tried. What that says is um, this claim is not really that robust, but it gets repeated all the time. He may have found something. I say in the book that he may have found something for certain for certain groups within homosexuality, the INAH3 size may affect. But then there's all these questions. Is that uh, many of these people were AIDS patients? Was the INAH3 size affected by their um, HIV medication? I think that it wasn't, but it's at least possible that it was. But I suspect that it wasn't. But then the other question is: To what degree did participation in homosexual behavior did that affect their INAH3 size at any level? And we just don't know. But the point is, it's not been replicated in 26 years, but he still gets quoted all the time. He's a hey, listen. He's a brilliant guy. He he worked for the Salk Institute and is a neuroanatomist. When you're working for the Salk Institute, that's a big deal. Oh yeah. So I mean, he's he's a freakishly bright guy. Uh, well, I guess he's a senior adult now. I think he's still alive. I don't think he's passed away. But I'm, I'm not claiming Simon Levey was a dummy. I'm not claiming that. What I am claiming is. His own data shows that an INAH3 size is neither necessary nor sufficient. And then outside of that, there's been no clear replication of his data in 26 years, but he still gets cited all the time. Yeah, I I remember when I was going through the book, that was one of the first sessions I was looking for, because I've heard people point to Simon LeVay over and over. Right. And then I was very pleased to see that you did indeed deal with it. 
Well, yes. And Simon LeVay wrote me a letter and telling me how appreciative he was for correcting all his errors. And he changed his mind. Now, I'm teasing. I'm completely <laughs> joking. Right? But I, I did try to – I'm being just uh, having some fun there. But I did try to um, address his data. Now, when it comes to genetics, if you move outside the brain and you look to genetics – well, there's been tons of research, people trying to find a gay gene. So I, I think if there's, when it comes to born this way arguments on the street, I think the biggest myth that I encounter is this idea that somehow people are born with, or they are born homosexual because of a gay gene. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, let's stop and step back. Before we talk about homosexuality or transgenderism or any of the uh, LGBT issues, the... Um, you're, you're talking about genetics and human behavior. And so there are tons of studies out there in years past where people claim to find some genetic cause of some particular human behavior, whatever that behavior may have been. And only later to have extreme difficulty with anyone replicating their data. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really a tricky thing. Uh, Genetic aspect of human behavior is really, really tricky when you're dealing with something that is not politically volatile like homosexuality or transgender identity. So when you start talking about two issues where there is a strong civic interest because people are concerned about civil rights and these sort of things for people that self-identify in these ways, it gets really, really uh, difficult. So I think some folks listening may have some understanding of the way genetics influence alcoholism in some people groups. And I found that a helpful starting point. So what we know is that there are some people groups that have a higher incidence of alcoholism, and we know that there are, a, at least at some level, genetic components to this higher level of alcoholism. Does it mean that they're born alcoholic? But typically what's going on is they have a more difficult time processing or metabolizing alcohol. That means they get drunker more quickly and they stay drunker longer, which contributes to alcoholism. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're born alcoholics, but it does mean that at some level there was a genetic contribution to, um, to their alcoholism. But it doesn't mean they're born alcoholics. everyone at this point at a you're listening to the deeper waters podcast and everything we do here is done through the support of people like you ordinary listeners who just like good apologetics like to know how to answer the questions that they're encountering and want to do something with that if you'd like to then help support a show that's trying to do that i'd really be appreciative of it you can go to the DeeperWatersApologetics.com and on the side you're going to see help support for work of Deeper Waters Christian Apo- Deeper Waters Ministries. Now, once you click that link, you'll be taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus, Ministry of Mike Lacona. 
you go in the right place. Those are my in-laws. And you make your donation there. And you get in touch. It's very important. You get in touch with me or Mike or Debbie or my wife, Allie. And say, hey, I I made a donation. I went to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. If you do that, we will make sure we get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also go and buy books on Amazon that I've either written or co-written. Written include... Written right now is just limited to a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed, and today's Christian. Co-written are books like Defining Inerrancy, or Groundless, or God and Natural Disasters. And you can also go and... Now, guys, I'm not sure if you've noticed this yet, but for women in your life, I mean, Dr. Branch was talking about uh, what you can do to get some more loving from your woman. One of the things you could do is a woman in your life tends to like jewelry. Not sure if you've noticed this yet, but they do. I mean, my wife even has an allergy to nickel, and she likes to wear jewelry when she can. So if, uh, if you're wanting to please that special lady in your life, go to our jewelry store and buy some jewelry. And it's ran by my friend Lena Cluster of Premier Jewelers. And whatever you purchase, 25% of that goes to Deeper Waters. So uh, you can buy something to uh, make up that great big screw-up that I know you recently did with a woman in your life. Or you can buy something to make up that future screw-up that I know you're going to make up a woman in your life. And as if you can't do any of these can I ask you to please consider at least going on iTunes sometime and leaving a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I love to see it. Get in touch with me. Tell me what you like about the show. Tell me what you don't like about the show. Tell me what you'd like to see on the show. I, I want to know all of this. Uh, Dr. Branch, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, I'm going to use some language that only Southern Baptists would understand. <laughs> so the rest of, if for the rest of my brothers and sisters outside the the Baptist Zion, you have to forgive me for a moment. But for all my Southern Baptist buddies, give to the cooperative program. Mm-hmm. That's the end of my message. So th- they'll understand that, and I rest, I realize the rest of you won't. So there you go. Okay. Now you were talking about the gay gene, and when you said, I immediately remembered. Uh, when I lived in Charlotte, I was an apologist friend of mine to see the movie Religious when it came out in the theaters. And I'm not sure if you ever saw that, but it was Bill Maher trying to make a mockumentary of religion, which failed miserably as far as I'm concerned. It's about him talking to someone that, in my, one of these groups dealing with homosexuality, and, and so there's just no genetic component to homosexuality. It goes to a brief clip of Bill Maher talking to Dean Hamer and saying, so you found a gay gene. Yes. That settles it, I guess. Dean Hamer found a gay gene, right? Yeah, he did not find a gay gene. Yeah, he did not. That's um, So let me just say, let me be clear. We as Christians are not denying a genetic or biological component to homosexuality. Mm-hmm. There is a genetic or biological component to homosexuality. Guess what? There's a genetic or biological component about everything you do in life. So we're not denying that, um, but Dean Hamer has not found a gay gene. So in 1993, he's working for uh, federal government and uh, National Cancer Institute, I think. But through some some oddities associated with some folks, some certain cancers that are uh, uh, more common among folks who have AIDS and are, are fighting with AIDS and dying of it, 
he starts uh, banging around with some grant money on, or excuse me, not grant money, but federal money on um, trying to find a gay gene. So what he discovers is a region called XQ28. So let me just say, he was referring to only males. And before I go any further, let me just say this. No one has found any area of significance in the human genome for female homosexuality, and people have tried. I mean, zero. So if you're going to argue a gay gene, you have to be honest and say, well, first of all, if there is, nobody's found anything, I mean, zero for female homosexualities, which should which should end the born this way argument right there. But um, so there's some some interesting data about uh, finger two uh, 2D, 4D digit ra- uh, finger digit ratios in females. But I'm going to get into that right now. The point being. Dean Hamer, 1993, did not find a gay gene. He found a region of interest. He had uh, a sample of um, homosexual males, and he's digging in this sample, and he's trying to find if there's any genetic correlation. So what he finds is brothers. He's, He's looking at homosexual brothers. They weren't all twins, but they were brothers who were both homosexual, and he's trying to find... Did they inherit anything significant uh, which would have caused them to have homosexuality? He's looking genetically. And specifically, he, he started out with a large sample, and from this larger sample, he narrowed it down, looking at people who had tended to have a history of homosexuality on their mother's side of the family. He's thinking that somehow this might, um, might come from, um, from the mother's side for... Uh, and what he found was this region, XQ28, is a, he claimed out of, um, he gets it down to 40 brother pairs, 40 brother pairs. Mm-hmm. And he claimed that 33 out of these 40 brother pairs had co-inherited genetic information at the XQ28 region. Now, that's a very discreet claim. And so let me explain what the XQ28 region is. XQ28 is a gene-dense region on the X chromosome that guys get from their mothers. It is gene-dense. So there's lots of genes there. And I've told my students this, and I don't think it's an oversimplification, to say that I think I found something in XQ28 is about like saying, hey, I think there's crime in Kansas City somewhere. (laughs) Okay? It's it's about like that. It's Mm -hmm. perhaps maybe more discreet than that, but it's about like that. And he was using an old form of genetic research. The, the, by the way, genetic research has leapfrogged forward. And I know sometimes we as Christians get afraid of people playing God and all this sort of stuff. But there are lots of healthy, helpful genetic infer- interventions and ways of diagnosing diseases. The science has moved forward light years since the Human Genome Project. I mean, it's really moved forward quite rapidly. Well, he's using an old form of research called genome-wide association studies. And without getting into a lot of details, um, you you live in the Atlanta area. Yes. And a genome-wide association study is kind of like this. It's not precise. It doesn't get down to the base pairs because everybody knows that DNA is is a bunch of Gs and As and Ts and Cs. It's binary code, really. They're Gs and As, Ts and Cs. That's, That's what it is. So he didn't claim to get down to that level. He's not saying that all these brothers had the same genetic coding. 
He's not even claiming that. He wasn't, Dean Hamer was not claiming they all had the same G's and A's and T's and C's lined up identically. What he was claiming was, well, they all inherited something at XQ28. Um, and to use another analogy of directions, in Atlanta, there's a landmark on Highway 41 North called the Big Chicken. And if I wanted to tell you how to get to downtown Marietta, Georgia, I would say, go to the Big Chicken and turn left. Okay, well, that's something like what a genome-wide association study does is. It says, go here and look in that direction. So Hamer hasn't found a gay gene. He's just saying, look in that direction. And people tried to replicate his data. Some, some people couldn't. Some people thought they did. Maybe, kind of, sort of, but not really. And so this goes on until 2014 and 15, and some guys from the University of Chicago uh, claimed to have uh, – it was Bailey and Sanders. They claimed to have replicated Dean Hamer's data. They made their announcement on Valentine's Day, no less, right? Uh-huh. Because they're all about love. Of course. So they're claiming to replicate Hamer's data. But then when you actually read what they claim, uh, they their data concerning XQ28 fell just short of, of statistical significance. A logarithm of the odd score of 3.0 is required, and their data for XQ28 came in at 2.99. So it's actually just short of statistical significance, which means it's a pretty weak claim. Uh, they did find another region of interest, 8P12, which is another chromosome. But again, they're only dealing with males. They had a much larger sample than Hamer did. But the point being, even they said that their data had weak predictive value. They, they said you couldn't take their data and predict if someone's going to be homosexual or not. So the whole question is, what have they found? Uh, the other issue is they were still using genome-wide association studies when better and more accurate methods are now available. And the whole question is, why didn't you use the better methods if you know they're out there? And they said, well, we want to do it the way Hamer did because we want to try to replicate him. All that said, what all that means is nobody's found a gay gene. That's what all that means. Nobody has found a gay gene. They found some, and I quote, regions of interest, and there are lots of genes in those regions, but nobody's found a gay gene. Yeah, I think another area we should definitely talk about as well is uh, I remember working somewhere in Charlotte around that very and forming a friendship with someone, and Next day, I go. I see him. I go and start talking to him, and he's acting like he doesn't have a clue who I am. And I'm thinking, this is very, very odd. Until all of a sudden, I realize there's a pair of identical twins working yeah. here, and I got to know both of them. They were both groomsmen at my wedding, and I think the twin studies are incredibly revealing on homosexuality because if the homosexuality was genetic, it would definitely show up in twin studies, wouldn't it? Well, and so what twin studies show us is there's probably a genetic or biological component for homosexuality for some people. Mm-hmm. But it, it hardly proves, in fact, it doesn't prove the born this way theory. In fact, I'm prepared to argue twin studies, though they get referenced a lot by homosexual activists, actually prove the other thing, that people aren't born this way. Here's why. Without going through all the history of twin studies and homosexuality, Basically, the best data out there is this, from looking at very large samples from Australia and Sweden, is if you have identical twins and one of them is a homosexual, about 20% of the time, the other one is a homosexual. That's for males. Mm -hmm. So that's the best data that's out there. Stop right there. That really should end the born this way argument right there. Mm -hmm. Because 
if homosexuality is truly a genetic trait, it wouldn't be 20% of the time. It'd be 100% of the time every time, and it's not. Right. But 20% is much higher than occurs in the average population, which tells us something biological or genetic may be going on there. Now, another issue is, though, the degree to which um, socialization affects twins. And so there, there's all these questions about, okay, so a higher percentage of if you have identical twins and one of them is a homosexual, a higher percentage of the co-twin is a homosexual as opposed to the general population. Why is that so? Well, some people have suggested there may be some uh, some socialization issue there, some parenting issues, some family dynamic issues that they share. And it's really hard to prove that. Um, I, I, I'm going to make a guess. I think the data shows that there is a correlation between homosexuality and some genetic variables in some populations. That hardly proves causation. And again, if this, when I say correlation, you have to remember that correlation and causation are not the same thing. Correlation has to do with the degree to which how two variables are, are connected. Now, which variable caused the other variable, or is there actually a causal relationship between the two variables? That's a whole different question. So it's a low level of correlation. And I, it, again, it's for some populations and not all. I, I suspect as years go by, what we're going to find is people talking about different forms of homosexuality as opposed to just one monolithic thing. But it's easy for political purposes to oversimplify and say people are born this way. Twin studies do not prove the born this way argument. I'm prepared to argue they prove something quite different. But what they do show is that for some people, there's most likely a biological component that functions as a variable in the background. Now, the degree to which biological and genetic variables affect adult identity and behavior, that's a whole different question. Mm-hmm. And again, what we want to stress as human, excuse me, as Christians is that humans are volitional creatures. We are not genetic automatons. And in fact, I'm prepared to argue the twin data shows we're not genetic automatons. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the more and more I think about this also, it's getting harder and harder in our culture to study just a purely biological component because one thing that I think has harmed us, and we haven't got to discuss this yet, is the more normalization of homosexuality and such. Even if someone grows up in the pure Christian homeschool atmosphere and such, they're still going to encounter this. You turn on the news, it's there. You turn on a television show, it's there, and that no doubt affects the way we think about things. Right, and I, I don't know what's going to happen with um, the data about how many people are homosexual or transgender as things things become mainstreamed. Um, I know that we're living in a culture where dissent must be silent, mm-hmm. and so people don't want their uh, anyone who has a contrary idea must be silenced. Right. So... I don't know what that's going to do to data about homosexuality. I have some suspicions, but the fact is, I don't know. But um, here's what I do know. The culture of America in 2017 looks a whole lot like Corinth or Rome in the first century. Mm-hmm. And the church was able to thrive in spite of intense persecution 
in those environments. And so I think we as Christians are going to have to think more like first century Christians. And we're going to have to, to put ourselves in that mindset and realize the degree that living for Christ means I am going against the world. I'm not living the way the world does. I mean, if you look at some of the most popular songs from a different era, maybe the 30s or the 40s, there was a beautiful love song written in the 1930s called The Very Thought of You. And this guy just sings a tender, just really sweet love song about uh, see your eyes and the the stars and the flower and just your smile. And it's very sweet. It is complete. that, That love song that was very popular on the radio in the 30s and 40s, it's completely consistent with a Christian worldview and Christian sexual ethics. It's wholesome. It's pure. It's lovely. Okay. In 2017, we have T-Pain and Florida and um, Wheezy and whoever else. And all, and the songs are basically audio pornography. Mm. And so we're dealing with a sexualized culture. And we as Christians too often have relied on the culture in, in the past, we just said, well, everybody knows the boundaries, right? Well, no, nobody knows the boundaries anymore. And so living in a sexualized culture, what does it look like to exhibit Christian ethics? So I think we go back to the first century because they were as well. It was a highly sexualized culture. If you look at some of the paintings that came out of the, the homes at Pompeii, I mean, they had pornography painted on the walls. Mm-hmm. of these homes. I mean, you go into someone's home for a dinner party and there's just this pornographic scene and they thought nothing of it. So that's very much like our culture. And so we as Christians are going to have to think very, very carefully about how do we live as this. Russell Moore has said something about, uh, what was the phrase he used? Ministering to casualties of the sexual revolution. Yes, I think that was his phrase. Well, that's a good phrase, right? We're ministering to casualties of the sexual revolution. So it, it, we have a countercultural message that uh, sexual restraint as opposed to a libertine ethic just embracing whatever you want to do. Uh, I think Jennifer Roback Morris of the Ruth Institute has had the same kind of approach with gathering testimonials of people hurt by the sexual revolution. Right. Yeah, she's it's a good resource. Yeah, meanwhile, I'm thinking, I must be very out of touch on things because I think you know more about the songs going on today than I do. Right. Yeah, but and, uh, I think the thing I'd still get with all this is what you said about Corinth, that no matter what the culture is doing around us at the time, our marching orders are still the exact same marching orders. It doesn't matter. Right. It is, and we have to be very, very careful when we think about what it means to walk for Christ and live for Christ and be a Christ follower, surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. We haven't talked about repentance, but, I mean, the Bible calls us to turn from our sin and then to uh, forsake it and, and and to flee from it. So what does all that look like for someone addressing same-sex attraction or transgender behavior? But especially in our culture, forsaking sin is forsaking sexual sin is going to be more challenging than I think it was 60 or 70 years ago. I am. Um, if I could give some pushback, some of my, I'm 49 years old. Some of the younger Southern Baptists in my own denomination have uh, have said, "Well, we we didn't like the um, they kind of made fun of the Mayberry mindset, if you will." And my first question is, "Why do you have against Andy Griffith?" But beyond that, the it was easier in a 
if I can use Mayberry, the fictional town of Mayberry, yeah. I guarantee you it was easier to preach the gospel. Some uh, Someone I respect once said, you can go to hell from Mayberry just as surely as you can from San Francisco. Well, that's right. You sure can. But I guarantee you this. You ask me which of those environments was it? did the gospel get a better hearing in? Well, it would have been some sort of Mayberry environment. So we don't live in that anymore. We, we now live in an environment where the, the gospel does not get a friendly hearing by many people. So what does it look like to live for Christ? Well, it looks just like it did for Christians in, in Corinth and it did in Rome or Ephesus. I mean, Ephesus, you had the temple to Artemis towering over everything in the town. This is this sexual goddess of fecundity towering over thing, everything there in Ephesus. And every time you stepped out, you can't help but see that temple. I mean, it's just towering over you. Mm-hmm. What did it look like to live for Jesus in that environment? Oh, they did it. And so, by God's grace, we can too, to the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we do need to talk about repentance and so some. That would get us into a topic of reparative therapy as well. Because yeah. you know, there are some Christians out there, I'm sure you're listening, and who really struggle with homosexual desires and say, I want to get rid of this. I don't know what to do. I don't know if it's possible. Right. So, here's what I would say. The... I have uh, some friends that are very involved with North, and, and we've had conversations and we chatted. And so I think North, their theory, if I could give a word of critique, here's my critique. Their theory goes back to some of the psychoanalytic Freudian ideas of a dysfunctional triad between mother, father, and child. And I would stress that that's true for some people. For some people, that's certainly true that that contributes to a same-sex orientation. It's not true for everybody. I'm not sure it's true for the majority. I suspect in a lot of cases it's just not. So I think the, um, the Nicolosi and Socorides and these guys, their theory has limits, and um, so I just want to say that. Now, short summary of the data is this. Can people change? Here's what I would say. A complete change from a homosexual orientation to a complete heterosexual orientation, to use a Kinsey number, let's say going from a Kinsey six to a Kinsey zero, that sort of change is very rare. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't happen very often. However, what happens more often than secular people like to admit is a movement on a continuum of change away from a homosexual orientation towards a heterosexual orientation or desire. Now, let me say, that movement on a continuum of change happens more frequently than secular people like to admit. It happens less frequently than we as Christians would hope. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a real change. And what, I, what I've learned to say is this. If, if you come to Christ and you realize that coming to Christ means repenting of sin and you been engaged in homosexual activity and homosexual sin or transgender behavior or something, part of being a Christ follower is to repent from that. What I would tell you is you just stepped into a fight. It is a 15-round toe-to-toe fight. Mm-hmm. And in, in round one or two, you may get some punches thrown at you both spiritually, emotionally. And we're in an environment where the world says, that's nuts. Why repent from it? Just embrace it. Uh, some mental health professionals would say, well, why why turn from that? Just embrace it. So uh, Mark Yarhouse and uh, Throckmorton have developed what they call sexual identity therapy. And basically it is a way to try to, they, they 
they have strong pushback on North. So you're stepping into an in-house debate among some Christians and mm-hmm. at least theists, at least. But uh, Throckmorton and uh, Yarhouse are Christians. And so their whole point is, okay, we're not just trying to, we don't really think that change is what the goal should be. The goal should be, how do I live consistent with, consistently with my Christian faith if my faith tells me that I shouldn't exhibit transgender behavior or I, I shouldn't engage in homosexuality? And so I have some points of their theory that I think are helpful and strong. There are some other points where I have some pushback. Uh, we'll see how it stands over the test of time. But the, the basic answer is this. Complete change is very rare. Movement on a continuum of change happens more frequently than secular people like to admit. It happens less frequently than we as Christians would hope. Mm-hmm. Well, no doubt, folks, some of our skeptical listeners will say, you know, what about Exodus International? I mean, they were <laughs> yeah. so good at that. And, such, yeah. and then they closed the doors, and that should demonstrate to us once more reparative therapy just doesn't work. Yeah, so I have a perspective on Exodus. I'm an outsider. I was aware of some folks in in that group. I was aware when it all went down and they closed up. This is my perspective, and um, so this is what I'm just going to say what I think. It is a dangerous thing when you take someone who's just come to faith in Christ and you give them a large pulpit presence or a large Mm -hmm. platform presence. It is a difficult – I have known several pastors of mega churches who could not handle – the adulation of several thousand people telling them how great they were, they started thinking the rules that applied to everyone else did not apply to them, and they fell via sexual immorality, financial impropriety, just treating people like jerks. They felt they were God or something. If it's a difficult thing for a mature Christian serving as a pastor to be in front of thousands of people telling them how great they are, I think part of the problem with Exodus is people people were rushed into the public forum and we treated them in a way that we wouldn't treat any other convert. Mm-hmm. Man, if I had a an alcoholic that came to faith in Christ last night that prayed a sinner's prayer, and I believe in doing that. Some of my Reformed brothers just have to put up with me, but I do it. So leading someone in a, a sinner's prayer and they trust Christ, I wouldn't take that person and put them 15 minutes on the pulpit next Sunday morning. But, why, but in the 70s and 80s, in response to the sexual revolution— and so much of this stuff out there that's saying, well, you know, this is just the way you are. You're born this way. And in a well-intended desire to say, no, 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 we're not biological machines. You're not just a machine. You have a will and you can choose. A lot of well-meaning preachers and ministries rushed people out into the public forum before they were ready. Mm-hmm. I mean, Paul didn't go to Mars Hill the day after he got saved, right? right. <laughs> Paul was a mature Christian before that happens. Yeah, I'm thinking, in fact, of First Timothy 3, he must not be a new convert to the faith. Right, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's well said, exactly, First Timothy 3, 6 and 7. So I think there was a some of that was going on with Exodus. People were rushed into a, a large platform presence before they were ready. I think that's at least part of what was going on. With Exodus, John Polk in particular, I mean, he comes out of this cross-dressing lifestyle, and then just a few years later, he's director of gender stuff for, for Focus on the Family. If somebody just stop, you can say, hey, this is a train wreck waiting to happen. Yeah. Of course, he's he and his wife got divorced, and he claims that he never changed, and people can't change. She still says that she she's changed, and people can change. It's uh, kind of a he said. <laughs> Divorces are always messy things, but... Um, 
that's part of my opinion on excess. I think people rush to the platform or they had time to, to really mature and grow as a Christian. That's a bad idea. Yeah. So let's suppose there is a Christian out there who's listening yeah. who is struggling with homosexual desires or bisexual desires in some way. If you could speak to them right now, what would you say? First thing I would say is that God loves you and he cares about you and Jesus died for you. And second thing I would say is this. If you're going to repent from, from the sin of homosexual behavior or transgender behavior or whatever it is, you're in a fight. And you are in a 15-round fight. And I'm not going to claim that any of this is easy. It's not e- Sexual purity is not easy for any of us. And all of us are in a fight. And so I don't want you to think that you're in this all alone and that people who have heterosexual temptations, it's easier for them. No, it's, it's hard for all of us. Mm-hmm. But we're all in this together. We're called to purity. Next thing I would say is this. Uh, you may not have asked for these desires, and I understand that. You may not just woke up one day and say, hey, I think I want to have transgender gender dysphoria or, or something like that or, mm-hmm. or same-sex desires. I understand you may not have asked for them, and so I appreciate that. And I genuinely do. I don't mean that as a platitude. I get it. But what I, I would tell you is what you feed will grow. And so all of us, while we may not, we may not can help the things which tempt us, we can all contribute to the strength of that temptation. And we all have and so what I would say is focus on the degree to which you can cause that temptation to be stronger, to go away, to weaken. And so what you feed will grow. That's true for all of us, and it's especially true for same-sex attraction or transgender behavior. And what about the rest of us out here, the Joe Christian out there seeing a pew? What would you say we should do when we do come across either some, both someone with a homosexual persuasion and also with someone who's coming across and just trying to get us to see this as normal? I mean, what's a good basic thing right. we can do? So first thing I would say is your, your co-worker or your... Um, so especially someone that comes to church and is open enough to tell the church. Listen, if somebody comes to a church and they're open enough to tell them, hey, I'm struggling with LGBT issues or I, I feel that I might be gay, they are usually not the activist marching down a street in a gay pride parade. They might be. I mean, I don't know. But I guess what I would say is especially because uh, we as Christians are, are, are really concerned about civil rights right now. We, we worry about Christian uh, photographers and bakers and florists that are being forced to participate in things which they find morally, uh, uh, morally uh, questionable. So don't treat them like, don't act like you are in some big public policy debate. Treat them like a person. Don't treat them like the activist in the gay pride parade that's, that's uh, screaming at you or something. Treat them like a person. Now, they might go to a gay pride parade. I, mm-hmm. I get all that. I understand yeah. it. But the average person is probably not. They're probably just trying to live their life and figure out how life's going to go. And so I would say just treat them like a person and try to meet them where they're at. I mean, Jesus had this. This is what's amazing about Jesus. Jesus interacted with sinners all across the spectrum, doing all sorts of things that God says don't do. He interacted with them, confronted them with their sin, called them to repent. But what's remarkable about Jesus is the degree to which many of these people still wanted to be around him. And that's the challenge for all of us. How can we, and a part of the answer is to say, you know, I I am interested in you. 
I care about you. Another thing I would say is don't focus everything on homosexuality. I know sometimes it's the elephant in the room. But, I mean, there's all sorts of life. Just talk about life. Yeah. And talk about the degree to which your faith in Jesus affects you day to day, hour by hour, minute by minute. That it's just something you live and breathe. And it's not just, oh, yeah, this Jesus thing means that I don't uh, I don't like you, the fact you're homosexual. No, it, it's, it's my life, and it's living by grace. And I, I guess trying to... And there's more to the gospel than than just don't be homosexual. The gospel is about the cross, the empty tomb, the imminent return, the incarnation. God became man, salvation by grace, through faith, all these things. And so I guess one of the things I would also say is don't be afraid to tell the gospel story. So often we get hung, we want us to talk about, well, we got to talk about homosexuality. Well, yeah, you do. you got to talk about that. But the first thing we're called to talk about is... The uh, the cross and the empty tomb, I mean, I, I really like evangelism explosion. I know it's kind of passe for a lot of people. But when I talk to anyone, I want to talk about that evangelism explosion outline. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. That's what I want to talk about. Mm. And, and so I would always, if you use like a Romans road, well, yeah, just start there. Use that Romans road. If you like the four spiritual laws, yeah, use that. I mean, but get the gospel out there. Yeah. There's nothing that says you have to be clean of our sin before you come to Jesus. In fact, you're generally supposed to come to him and let him handle that. Yeah, that's right. And something I've also said is that homosexual men, their guy friends, just treat him like one of the guys. And likewise for women, that could be one of the most helpful things you do. Yeah, and I, you've touched on that. I mentioned that in the book. One of the uh, one of the findings, uh, there was one study tried that showed some movement, some, some real success for a small sample. It was a small sample. But some guys that had some success moving on a continuum away from homosexual orientation towards a heterosexual orientation, not saying they had a complete change, mm. they had a strong movement on a continuum, was the degree to which healthy relationships with other men in the same sex mm-hmm. really helped. And I would say this to guys in the church because there's more, there tend to be more uh, male than female homosexuals. A lot of these guys, if you're, they come to church and you're a guy and you tell them, man, I really care about you. I love you in the Lord and I'm interested in you. That, that may be the first time they've have ever had another man in their life tell them, I love you and I'm interested in you without some sexual agenda behind it. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, that's very powerful. Same thing for ladies. I mean, so many of these women have been exploited. And the first time they have a really healthy friendship. And I think that's one thing I uh, you, to mention Exodus again. Sometimes... Uh, I know some pastors, the reason they liked Exodus was, well, that's what those guys, they're just uncomfortable talking about homosexuality or transgender issues. Okay, well, let's go put them with that group over there. Well, no, let's put them in a prayer group with other mature Christians from all across the spectrum. I mean, we, uh, so uh, we have to be careful about pigeonholing people in general. Yeah. Uh, when really the healthiest thing we can do is have a healthy, mature group of Christians and sinners get into that group, regardless of what their sin is. Sinners get around other healthy, mature Christians, and we all sharpen each other for holidays. Well, Dr. Branch, it's been a fascinating discussion. I'd like to everyone know, we've only very scratched the surface of a book, and everything in there is so much more in-depth than I've been able to say. It's by Weaver Publishing Company, and such great company. Got Jim Weaver and I have spoken some, and the Kindle version of the book is 849. The paperback is 1019 right now as of this recording. Now, Dr. Branch, do you have a blog, a website, where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? I, uh, brother, I don't blog. and I have a website that's under construction, but I don't have one right now. 
Okay. So I guess if people want to get in touch with you, they should probably just contact you through the university. Well, I will tell you now. this. I, I'll make a plug for the school. I teach at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. President Jason Allen has uh, done a wonderful job and many great things happening here. So if you want to, um, to know more about our school, www.mbts.edu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave with a deeper wireless audience today? Jesus loves you. He died for you. Uh, he, where sin did abound, grace did abound all the more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are some great thoughts to leave behind. And uh, Dr. French, I'd like to thank you for coming on here and taking time to do this interview. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Sure enough, Nick. You take it. Take care, bud. I look forward to sharing with you again. Mm-hmm. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Jason Georges on talking about his book, Ministering in Honor Shame Cultures. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.